Father, again, thank you for this chance to get together and to study your word. I thank you that by your power and your grace, you're going to make my voice hold out for this study. And, and uh, Lord, we look forward to what you're going to be showing us today from our, where we are in Revelation. Uh, we thank you for all those that are listening right now on the computer and uh, all around the world. And we want to say hi, a bunch of us here, say hi to Sue, who's listening from Costa Rica. Father, again, thank you for the fact that you are the one who's going to be doing the teaching. And we rest in you tonight and look forward to what you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started tonight, I want to deal with a couple of things and, and, and make them clear, hopefully, as much as I can. I am studying and learning this with us as we go. So if you have this mindset that Jim has Revelation all figured out and the Bible understood, you're under a false assumption. All right? <clears throat> I had a, a wonderful conversation with Dave Harvey, one of the guys that helps me in my study. And uh, we got talking about, over the years of teaching the Bible, how many times... We came to realize later on, as we studied more, that, oops, what I used to think was right is not right. This verse proves that that's not true. And the neat thing about the grace of God is, when he sent his disciples out two by two to preach the good news of the kingdom, they didn't even know what the kingdom was. And God uses us even though we're faulty. And Dave gave a wonderful illustration. He said, it's kind of like his granddaughter's picture on the refrigerator. He said his granddaughter's four, and she drew him a picture, and it's a stick figure, but he loves it. Because it was done with her heart. And he said, it's not a beautiful picture in the sense of how nice it looks or anything like that. It's not perfect. But because it was done with her heart, he, he loves it. And you know what? Our offerings to God of what it is we do, that's how God sees us. He's not measuring whether or not we got it perfect. And so the neat thing about that is, is I tell you right off, as we wrestle with some of these things, I don't have it all figured out. Actually, nobody does. And uh, if you do any kind of study, you'll realize some great men over the years don't see it the same. But we're to study this book. We're to know what it says. We're going to be comparing it to the rest of the Bible. Get it in our hearts. We're going to try to put together some kind of a timeline because there's some things that might work better than this and the other. But when it all comes down to it, the issue is, do you know what it says so that God can bring it to your understanding when and if need be? And the second thing I want to point out as we get into this study tonight as well is, as you do your study, make sure you understand the difference between doctrine and parables. It's very important. Because a lot of people try to build their doctrine from parables. Jesus will give a parable and he'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like. And he tells a parable. And then they try to build their doctrine from the parable. Well, this must represent the church, and this must be the nation of Israel, and this we have to be real careful about that. Jesus used illustrations to illustrate a point. And so when you see it's a parable, just simply say, what is the point that Jesus is trying to communicate? That's all. Don't try to make the parable fit all the details of the eschatology and things like that. All right? There are going to be times when he's going to say, it is going to be like this. And this is what's going to happen. Then you can take it down and put it down because that's how it's going to be. Other times he's going to say, let me give you an illustration of what this is going to be like. And you've got to make sure you don't build your doctrine from that. You'll see that as we get into the study tonight. So in Revelation chapter 19, um, I, where we left off was in verses 7, 8, and 9. I'm going to read it to you again. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous 
various acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Now where we left off last week was we were dealing with the difference between the wedding of the Lamb, which I believe happens in heaven, and the church being the bride, and the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is separate. And I believe, and I'm going to show you scripturally why, I believe the wedding supper of the Lamb happens on the earth during the millennial period. Alright? One of the evidences of that is this. Um, the church was given, it says here in Revelation 19, um, fine linen, verse 8, uh, fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, which stands for the righteous acts. <coughs> Excuse me. Then as you see, the bride comes with Jesus to the earth, as you're about to see as we read in verses 11 through four, uh, and following, he's coming wearing those clothes that she's been giving at, at, the, at the wedding itself. Alright? Also, when Jesus comes back to the earth, where is Israel at this time? In heaven or on the earth? On the earth. Well, I'm going to show you that the scripture teaches very clearly that Israel will partake, partake in the wedding feast. So if, if Israel is going to partake in the wedding feast, the wedding feast must happen on the earth. Alright, so this is what we're going to take a look at. So let's go to Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following. Uh, it says, And I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now who's this rider on the horse? Jesus. How do you know it's Jesus? There's plenty of evidence here. How do you know? King of kings and Lord of lords. Very good. His name is what? The Word of God. Remember John 1.1? 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, verse 14 says, and made His dwelling among us. What's another evidence? That it's Jesus. Remember the sword coming out of His mouth. In, John, in Revelation chapter 1, John's on the Isle of Patmos. He hears this voice behind him. He turns. He sees Jesus, and the sword is coming out of His mouth. This is Jesus coming back to the earth. Now, as for why I think the wedding supper is on the earth, one of the main reasons is the fact that in the Old Testament and New Testament teaching, this feast involves Israel and therefore must be on the earth. And so I want to show you some of these evidences of that. Go to Isaiah 25. We're good verses 1 through 9. Excuse me. Isaiah 25, verses 1 through 9. Listen to what it says. It says, O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name. 
For in perfect faithfulness you have done marvelous things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall, and like the heat of the desert, you silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace from his, of his people. From all the earth the Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. An obvious passage that deals with the very end in the millennial reign, if you will. And here it says, On this mountain, on the earth, God is going to provide a feast. Now, this feast actually was re referred to by a man in the New Testament. Go to Luke chapter 14. The Jewish people understood that the prophecies of the coming king, the coming Messiah, involved him coming to the earth, setting up his kingdom, and there was going to be this feast. And in Luke chapter 14, while Jesus is teaching, a man makes this very interesting statement. Luke 14, verse 15. Look at what this man says. It says, When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. What's he referring to? Probably that passage we just read in Isaiah 25. But Jesus takes this opportunity to teach from this. And those of you that have Bibles that break up the sections, what does it say above verse 15? It says the parable of the great wedding banquet. Therefore, Jesus is going to teach a point here. He's going to illustrate something. You don't want to build all your doctrine from it in the sense of, Everything is supposed to refer to something else and try to make it all fit. That's where we get ourselves in trouble. All right? But there are some truths that are here. All right? So, um, Jesus had just said, um, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And that's when this guy heard this and he said, hey, blessed is a man who will lead at the feast in the kingdom of God. And then Jesus goes on and says, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought a five yoke of oxen, and I am on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and the country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now this is interesting. Jesus is talking about his return and the resurrection of the righteous. This guy says, blessed is he will sit at the table in the kingdom of God. And uh, Jesus said, let me, let me tell you something about this kingdom. What's he trying to teach from this parable? 
Not everybody that thinks they're going is going, right? Is that pretty much how you can sum up this little story? Now, here's the danger of trying to make all the details of the parable fit. When Jesus comes back to the earth, what condition will the nation of Israel be in at that time? They're going to be what? Running from the Antichrist, won't they? They'll be under severe attack. The, all the stuff going on in the earth, and we've been reading in Revelation about the stuff that's happening in the seas and the land and all this stuff. Do you think they're going to be saying, no, I'd like to come to your banquet, Jesus, that you're having now at the great resurrection, but uh, I just got married and I can't come, and I've got five oxen. No, don't try and say that's what they're going to say when he comes back. You can't. It's a story to teach. Jesus just simply said, let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. Not everybody that thinks they're going is going. This guy was probably pretty pompous when he made his statement. And Jesus said, let me tell you something about that. And he told a parable. That's why when you study, is it a parable or is it a doctrinal, here's what it's going to be. Makes a big difference when you study. When you start doing that, you'll see. All right, Go to Matthew 26. Let's talk some more, though, about this, uh, this uh, feast, uh, which I believe is the marriage supper. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. This is while they're taking the Last Supper, the Passover meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Verse 29, sorry, 26 of chapter 26. He gave thanks and broke it, and he gave, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Do you see it? What did Jesus say? He says, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine again until when? Until the kingdom. Well, when's He going to be able to drink it? In heaven or on the earth? It's going to be on the earth. The fruit of the vine. I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. I believe the marriage supper itself is going to happen at, on the earth at the end of the seven-year seven tribulation period when we come back with Him. He's going to set up His kingdom, and we're going to get into great detail about that. You may be surprised that what doesn't happen first, which I thought for years did. But go to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I'll go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. And he said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Now we're going to come back to that kingdom of heaven. But then he goes on to say, But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside. Into the darkness will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at this very hour. Now, I'm going to give you a little insight here. Part of the reason why we've had this confusion over the marriage supper of the Lamb, being on the earth, thinking it's in heaven instead of on the earth, is Matthew describes it as the kingdom of heaven. A lot. You know why? Matthew wrote his gospel to the Jews. The Jews would not use the name God. Whenever we talk, all the other gospel writers, I'm going to show you that in just a second. All the other gospel writers, Luke, Mark, John, they all used the same terms, same passages, and they called it the kingdom of God. But Matthew would always describe it as the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Jews that he was trying to reach felt to say the name of God was a sin. And so if he said the kingdom of God, they would have turned him, out, turned him off and uh, never listened because they can't say God. And so Matthew calls it kingdom of heaven. So all these years we've been reading it as kingdom of heaven. And we think heaven. But I'll show you. Go to uh, Luke chapter 22 and you'll see this exact same situation described that we saw in, in Matthew 26. But there Luke clearly calls it the kingdom of God. Luke 22 verses 14 through 18. It says, when an hour came and Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it find fulfillment in, see there, kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he said, gave thanks and said, take and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He's going to be eating on the earth. The marriage supper is going to be on the earth. All right. Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. You are, are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, Jesus says, and sit on, 12, on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. When he sets up his kingdom on the earth, the twelve apostles are going to sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. Those of us who are in the church, hopefully you understand the Bible says we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be given responsibility and authority on the earth during that thousand year reign. Whether or not you're in charge of Australia or who knows, or Bithlo. I don't, I don't know what it is. But, uh, but we're going to be given responsibility. But what does he say? You may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. Again, hopefully... That's enough to let you see what I'm talking about. I believe the wedding of the Lamb happens in heaven, and it's the church who is the bride. She's been given clean linen to wear, righteous acts of the saints who get our righteousness from God. Then when He comes back to the earth to set up His kingdom, who comes with Him? Must be the church, because they're the ones coming in the white linen that they've just been given. But the marriage feast doesn't happen till the earth when He sets up His kingdom. The marriage supper of the Lamb does not happen in heaven. As pretty as that picture is of that beautiful banquet table in the clouds in heaven that we a lot of times have seen, I don't think it's really biblical, as I don't think the marriage supper is going to happen in heaven. All right? 
It's going to be a beautiful banquet table, wherever it is. Yeah, that's for sure. But I think it's going to be on the earth. Any questions before we move on? Because we're about to move into some real chewy stuff. Yes? Mm-hmm. Nope. They'll be a part of the. They'll be the guests. They'll be the guests at the marriage, at the wedding supper, and the tribulation saints will be the guests. And those who have made it through the tribulation on the earth, who believe, they're going to be invited as well. That's why the the angel in Revelation 19 said, "Blessed are those who are invited to this meal." The nation of Israel at that time will be invited to be a part of it as well as guests. The bride is being shown off, and they, they will. The rest of them will be the guests at the table. But here's the thing. Go ahead. The Old Testament saints are the resurrected until after the millennium. No, I think the Old the Old, the Old Testament saints will be will be resurrected before that. At, when he comes back. I mean, let's take a look at that. In chapter that's in Revelation chapter twenty. The rest of the dead, the ones that are going to be judged, are the ones that don't aren't resurrected till the end. Here it is right here. Right. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that is part of the first resurrection. Great, but listen, look at what it says after that, though. The second death has no power over them. And the second death, though, is the judgment. At the, It clearly says that the lake of fire is the second death. So I think the Old Testament saints are resurrected at the beginning of the millennial period. The rest of the dead, meaning all those who are going to be judged, are not resurrected until the, after the, the thousand years. And that is the second death. And you look at Revelation chapter 20, verses, uh, and we'll get to this in time if you can hang on. But we'll get into and study this. All right, well, that's good. <laughs> but I believe that the, the Old Testament saints will be resurrected to be a part. Abraham, Isaac, they're going, to be, they're going to be sitting at that feast. Jesus said, Abraham, Isaac are going to eat with them. So they're going to be resurrected if it's in the millennium. So they're going to be there. I'd like to say, as we'll get to that, the second death, though, is when everybody that's not resurrected at the first resurrection, which comes at the beginning of the millennial period, everyone that's not resurrected at that time will be sent to the lake of fire. And it clearly says the lake of fire is the second death. So, But the next question comes, how long is this wedding supper? There's some that think it lasts the whole millennial period. And honestly, whichever way you want to go doesn't really matter. I lean toward that it's at the beginning of the millennial period. Doesn't have to last the whole deal. But there's an interesting passage that I want us to look at in Daniel chapter 12. I'd like to say, no one really knows how long it lasts. I don't know if it's just the beginning of the millennial period and then the wedding supper's over. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. But there's an interesting passage in Daniel 12. I'm sorry? 75 days. Yeah, well, it was very, we're going to deal with this 75 days passage in Daniel 12. Go back to Daniel chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 11 and 13. Daniel's been wrestling with all these visions of the end times. And, and Daniel, who's been having given insight into all this stuff, at this point when he's given views, uh, uh, visions of the millennial reign, and uh, sorry, the, tri- the, the tribulation period, 70th week of Daniel, when he's given visions of that, it's confusing him. He doesn't understand it. And he's told in verse 9, Go your way, Daniel. The words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. And many will be purified and made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. 
But then he was told this, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, Revelation shows us that the Antichrist comes into the temple at the midway point, right? And he sets up the abomination that causes desolation. He puts an end to sacrifice. And how, much, how many days is the second half of the tribulation? It's 1,260 but Daniel's told, and we're going to see in Revelation 12 coming up that it says that very clearly. But Daniel's told, from the point that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, which is the midpoint, there will be 1,290 days. There's an extra 30 days here for some reason. Blessed is the one who waits and waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. If you add that, you'll find out there's an extra 75 days. Why are there extra 75 days? Guess what? We don't know. Now, some think that it could, it could be because of the need to purify the temple after the fact that it had been desecrated by the Antichrist and there needs to be a purification period. Don't know. That could be possibly. It could be that during this time is the judging of the nations from the end of the 70th week until, and that the millennium doesn't really kick in until a certain point afterwards. The best thing to tell you is nobody knows. But there are people that have lots of speculations. I read somebody tonight excuse me, that thinks um, that uh, Jesus is going to de defeat some enemies and then 30 days later he's going to go and deal with the Battle of Armageddon and that's why the extra 30 days and all. There's lots of speculation out there. But honestly, we don't know. And why, why are we reading it then? To take it to heart. And it will make sense one day. Go ahead, Allison. There's also in the Jewish custom, once they were married, like we talked about last weekend, or last week, once, they were, once the ceremony happened, that was the honeymoon Right, but we're coming back with him. Right, but that would be when that would go with the feast that happens. Well, possibly, but we're about to look at some passages tonight that show that Jesus comes back after 1,260 days. So then with that, you go, okay, now we got a problem. All right, again, we're speculating. We don't know. And if I did, I'd tell you, but I don't. So how long is the millennial, uh, uh, sorry, the, uh, how long the millennium lasts? That's easy enough. Uh, how long does the marriage supper last? We don't know. It could be the whole millennium. It could just also just be the beginning part of it. Not worried about it. Whatever it is, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. All right. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, we see the return of Jesus to the earth to set up his kingdom. But before he can set up his kingdom, he's going to defeat his enemies who do not want him to be king. And I'm going to tell you something now that I have not understood, and I don't fully understand it, but I have thought for years that when Jesus comes back to the earth, he comes directly to the Mount of Olives. I believe differently now from an intense study that I'm about to share with you. I think the Bible teaches that Jesus does not come directly back to the Mount of Olives, but he actually comes back to Basra and deals with his enemies in Basra there, and at the same time gathers the nation of Israel, because it would be in Basra where the nation of Israel ran, when they ran from the Antichrist. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination that causes desolation set up, run, get out. And they run, I'm going to show you all this scripture, they run to the desert. Now, if you're looking at a map of Israel, the Dead Sea is down at the bottom of the Jordan River, south, about 20, 25 miles southeast of the Dead Sea is Edom, and that's where Basra is. It's also called Petra. 
Petra in the Greek. Basra in the Hebrew, Petra in the Greek. That's where many scholars believe that the nation of Israel is going to run to to hide. But I have come to realize that all these years I thought Jesus was coming back to the Mount of Olives first. But I'm going to show you scripturally, and I can show you a lot of scripture, that I actually think we've misunderstood this for one reason. The reason we've misunderstood it is because of Acts chapter 1. Go to Acts chapter 1 and I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. written by Luke, and Luke wrote the book of Luke. So he says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. After after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them and over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now we've got to stop. Wait a minute. Jesus is doing what? What was he doing with them? In verse 4. He was eating with them. Didn't he say, I won't eat or drink from the vine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God? That's right. This doesn't say that he was drinking the fruit of the vine. He says he was eating. Remember when he appeared with his resurrected body for those 40 days? They thought he was a ghost. He said, what have you got to eat? They gave him some fish. He ate it. It didn't hit the floor. All right. And he said, you know, ghosts can't do what I just did. I'm, I'm for real. This eating here is not what it's referring to when he says, when he sets up his kingdom. So he's just, but he's enjoying meals with them. And then he said, don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, we've got to stop here, and you've got to understand where they are. When they finished this whole section, look at verse 12. We'll come back to the verses we left off. Look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. So where are they when this conversation goes on? They're on the Mount of Olives, all right? Keep your, fi- your finger or a book here, uh, a bookmark in Acts 1. Go back to Zechariah chapter 14. In verses 1 through 5, I want you to see what Zechariah 14 says. It says, the day of the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women and women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the city will not be taken. Sorry, the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two form, from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. Wait a minute. Here it says that he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. So because of the fact that what we're about to read occurred on the Mount of Olives, 
I myself also in, have believed that Jesus' return was directly to the Mount of Olives. I've preached it and taught it for years. But look closely at what happens next, okay? So they're on the Mount of Olives. Jesus said, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the gift that my Father promised you. Uh, then in verse 6, they, Acts chapter 1 again, verse 6, So when they met together, they asked him, Lord... Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why do you think that they're thinking this? Because they know the scripture. They know the scripture said he was going to stand on the Mount of Olives. Well, we're on the Mount of Olives. You've died. You've risen from the dead. You've been alive for 40 days. Are you going to set up the kingdom now? Because he's been talking to them about the kingdom. And then Jesus said, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the skies as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, men of Galilee, they said. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you, from, from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Does this passage say that he'll literally come back to the Mount of Olives? It just said he's going to come back in the same manner in which he left. But for years, because of Zechariah saying that he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives, because they were standing on the Mount of Olives when the disciples said, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Jesus says, not if you know the times or the dates. And then when he ascended from the Mount of Olives, and the angel said the same Jesus is going to return in the same manner, I have always assumed he's coming back to that same spot. But as I've been studying this and wrestling with this and actually doing a lot of research, I've come to realize that I and many Bible scholars actually believe Jesus' return is first to Basra. And I'll show you why. So keep in mind, here's what happens, a chronology. The nation of Israel is under attack by who? At the end of this tribulation period. The Antichrist and his armies, alright? At the midpoint, when he reveals himself to not be the nice guy that they signed a covenant with, they run for their lives. They run to Basra. Alright? And so, the fall of Jerusalem, beginning at the midpoint of the tribulation, begins and culminates at the end of the tribulation period. Zechariah, go to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm, I'm going to give you a, a possible chronology of the return of, of Jesus. I think, and I think I can show you scripturally, and tonight we'll only have time to get into the first two steps. I believe Jesus actually will return to Basra, where the nation of Israel is, is gathered. He'll reveal himself to him there. From there, he'll defeat his enemies all the way back to Jerusalem and actually have a victory ascent up the Mount of Olives and set up his kingdom. And I'll show you why. Go to Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verses 1 through 3. It says, This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel, the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him, declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem a movable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves, it says. And then in chapter 14, as we just read, he says the day of uh, verse 1, a day the Lord is coming when your plunder will be divided among you. I'll gather the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured. The houses ransacked, women raped. Half the city will into exile. The rest of the people will not be taken from the city. So the first thing that's going to happen is from the midpoint until the end of the tribulation, the, the, Jerusalem is going to be under siege and under attack. And you can see right now in our world stage that, man, that could happen tomorrow. 
where people are wanting Israel gone. They're wanting to remove them from the earth and all this kind of stuff. All right, so the Jews flee to the desert of Edom near Basra. And that, that's where Jesus may return first. And I think, very strongly, I think he will. He'll gather Israel and begin the destruction of his enemies. And so what I want to do is I want to take you through a study now to show you how and why I believe that it's to Basra Jesus comes back first. Let's start in Revelation chapter 12. By the way, as I started to do this study and started to see, does anybody else see this? I came to realize most of the guys that I like already have been saying this for years. And I just never knew it. I've never known it. Even good old Tony Kessinger. And Dave Harvey. I was just slow. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Listen to what it says. It says, A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. All right, and look now at verse 13 and 14. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years, or in the Jewish timetable of 30-day months, 1,260 days. So we've seen this before. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist reveals who he really is. The nation of Israel runs, most of them, out of the city into this place prepared for them in the desert where they're going to be for three and a half years protected by God. All right? So we at least know that the nation of Israel is being brought to the desert and protected somewhere in a desert. Where is this desert? Well, go to Micah chapter 2. Now, does anybody here have a King James translation? All right, you have one? Alright, well I'm curious what the New King James says, but if anybody has a King James translation, because actually the New King James translation, I'm sorry, the King James translation is the only one that puts it in this way. But in Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Excuse me. Go ahead and read for us verses 12 and 13 in the New King James translation, please. 12 and 13. 12 and 13. Uh-huh. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep of the fold, like the flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many men. The one who breaks open will come up before them. They will break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. All right. Here he's obviously talking about the promised deliverance. Your, the, the, these translations, well, most of us have, don't have it. But King James translation actually says that I'll bring them together like a sheep to Basra. You got the King James? Go ahead and read it. Read the King James. Verse 12. 
I will surely assemble of Jacob all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as a flock in the midst of their fold, and they shall make great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Now the reason why some translations have Basra, others don't, is because of two words that look alike with one letter being different. Some people think that it should have been a different word and they changed it to sheep sheep pen or whatever. But the King James has always said that it would be Basra that he gathers them at. Which makes sense for the fact that that is a place that is over in the desert east of Jerusalem. Uh, southeast actually of Jerusalem. And there are many other scriptures like I'm about to show you that actually show that Jesus goes and attacks and defeats his enemies in Basra as he's gathering the nation of Israel. Go to Isaiah 34. Actually, we're going to deal with verse 6 eventually. We're going to look at verses 1 and 8, 1 through 8, the whole thing. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 8. It says, Come near, you nations, and listen, and pay attention, you peoples, let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all that comes out of it. The Lord is angry with all the nations. His wrath is upon all their armies. He will do- totally destroy them, but, and He will give them over to slaughter. Their slain will be thrown out. Their dead bodies will send up a stench. The mountains will be soaked with their blood. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the ravine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom. That's where Basra, by the way, it is. See it? It descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. The sword of the Lord is bathed in blood. It is covered with fat, the blood of lambs and goats, fat from the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in Edom. And the wild oxen will fall with them, the bulls. Bull calves and the great bulls, their land will be drenched with blood, and the dust will be soaked with fat. For the day the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of retribution, to uphold Zion's cause. Here it says he descends to Edom. It gets even more clear in Isaiah 63. Go to Isaiah 63. Verses 1 through 6. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. Where is he coming from? He's coming from Edom and Basra. And actually, like I said, when I started to do some more study, I came to realize, you know what? Some of the great Bible scholars have been saying this for a long time. I just have assumed, because he was on the Mount of Olives when he ascended, 
And the angel said he's going to come back in the same manner. And Zechariah chapter 14 talks about him standing on the Mount of Olives. I just put two and two together. But the scripture never said that he would come directly back to the Mount of Olives. I actually, and that's what we're going to get to more next week. I'm going to show you one more passage that deals with Israel and Basra. He's, his clothes is stained with blood. And we're not. We don't help him win this battle. We don't do the fighting. We come with him. We just ride on the shirt tails. But it's right. In the same way, this is the same type of a thing. Folks, I think Jesus goes first to the nation of Israel who's been gathered in Basra. And oh, by the way, and we'll get to that in time, they actually at this point are going to be calling out to him. Some Bible scholars think they're going to be quoting Isaiah 53 for three days nonstop. Surely he was bruised for our iniquities and crushed for our sins and these types of things. They're going to call out. And then that passage where it talks about look on him whom they pierced, actually better translate look unto him whom they've pierced. They're going to be calling out to him and saying, you are the one who can save us. You are the Messiah because God has poured out his spirit upon them and they're going to grieve and they're going to mourn and he'll return there first to his nation of Israel. And from there, he will have a bloody battle all the way to Jerusalem and he will ascend to the Mount of Olives with a victory ascent to set up his kingdom. And from there, after he's defeated his enemies, he then will begin judging the nations and we'll get to all that next week. But look at Habakkuk chapter 3. There's another passage that actually shows that he's going to be coming to Basra and Edom first. Now if you don't know a little bit about the topography and the history, you probably would miss this. And thank God for those who have done the study that I could read their research. Habakkuk chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 6. This is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on Shigonoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Look what it says in verse 3. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Anybody want to take a guess as to where those are? They're in Basra, in Edom. It's actually just north of Basra. In Edom. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from His hand, where His power was hidden. Plague went before Him. Pestilence followed His steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Like I said at the beginning... A lot of the stuff that I'm teaching you is coming from my study and my prayer and my wrestling with it. I don't have it all figured out. But I think God opened my eyes to something in this week's study that actually he's not coming back first to the Mount of Olives. He's going first to Basra. And we're going to deal with this timetable a little bit more. Next week we're going to look at how the scripture seems to show that Jesus goes from Basra Basra to the Valley of Jehoshaphat and defeats his enemies there. And then climbs a victory ascent to the Mount of Olives, like I said. And I put in my notes here, stay tuned. Now, I'm also going to share with you just now as we wrap up. For years, I've leaned toward the fact that the uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39 battle, the Gog and Magog battle, happens before the tribulation period. I'm starting to lean toward that it matches more up with the second half of the tribulation. Again, I don't know. Wonderful men look at it both ways. 
But I'm going to show you some very interesting similarities between the second half of the tribulation and the Gog and Magog battle. There's a chance that it actually is the nations gathering, coming to fight against Jerusalem like we read about was going to happen. It was going to begin at the halfway point of the tribulation. There's a chance that actually that that is referring to the Gog and Magog battle. And there's a very interesting passage in Ezekiel 39 that says that when this battle happens from that time on, Israel will know that I'm their God and the nations will know that I'm their God. And guess what? If that happens before the tribulation, it won't be from that time on that Israel will know and the nations will know because Israel is going to sign a peace treaty with the, with the, with the Antichrist. He's going to also, um, the nations are going to think that Israel's to be wiped out. So Ezekiel 39 kind of leans toward the fact that it actually, that parallels the Gog-Magog battle happens at the second half of the tribulation period, culminating in the battle of Armageddon. I told you we don't have it figured out. But we are living in the days, I believe, where God is giving more insight as we study, as we pray, as He gives us clearer, clearer pictures of certain things. So we're going to open it up for any questions before we wrap up. Any questions that anybody wants to ask? This is a good stopping point. My voice is held out, but there ain't much left. Thoughts? Go ahead. Go God. Go ahead. Susan? I think the marriage supper is going to be spread out over a big area because of how many people are going to be coming to it. You can't, probably wouldn't fit on the Mount of Olives, you know. But actually, I think there's going to be the judging of the nations first. You're going to see that the judging of the nations is going to happen. And then you're going to see who's invited and who's not invited to the marriage supper. These types of things. And so we'll get to that in just a little bit. Let me pray for us. And then if we want to talk some more, we can. Father, again, thank you for this chance to study your word. I thank you for the fact that there's some things tonight that are going to cause us to maybe dive a little bit more and do some more study. But Lord, thank you for the fact that however you do it, it's going to be awesome. We look forward to being a part of that that day. And thank you kind of selfishly that we don't have to fight the battle. I've never been a fight, fighter myself. And to see that you're going to do it yourself, uh, you're powerful enough. You don't need our help anyway. But Lord, bring this day soon. We pray this in your name. Amen.